Hey, beautiful humans. It's time to stop sacrificing for everyone else and put you first. Are you feeling tired, stuck, or disconnected? Or maybe you're just looking to be the best version of you. I'm Mary Wong. And I'm Dr. Tanya Wild, And this is Embrace, Embrace You First, a podcast to help you thrive and not just survive. We are busy moms, successful entrepreneurs, and doctors in the field of natural medicine with over 40 years combined clinical experience. You're going to learn from our professional expertise and our juicy secrets that have helped thousands of men and women just like you. We are going to teach you practical and doable strategies on health, relationships, and career. So sit back, relax, and get ready to embrace you right now. Yeah, it's uh, most guys have a little touch of ADD. Um, You have to to be that hyper vigilant with everything. You know, I in the guiding world, it served me well. In in normal life, it's driven (laughs) it's driven girlfriends away. Um, You know, because when you walk by a tent and you see the guy lines, you're like that third line in the back that's in the shadow isn't tied down correctly. A client listens to that and says, "Oh my gosh, thank you." that could have completely ripped away the corner of my tent. You know, you say to a partner, you know, the, that corner of the bed's not really tucked in. Effectively. <laughs> the bed's not really made <laughs> to a certain standard. It's like, well, it's been nice knowing you. Too so, funny. I love it. I love it. Bye. Well, thank you for being here, Luis yeah. Benitez, for the second part to the, our episode for Embrace You First. You have been so enlightening and we want to keep sharing your stories, your challenges. And we were we ended off talking about challenges. And again, for those that are just joining us today, Luis has summited Everest six times and has been a guide for actually how long have you been a guide? 20 years. 20 years. Okay. So, you know, a little chunk of time, guys. And so he has transformed his guiding as into a career. And then now he's brought it into Colorado and created a flourishing outdoor recreational program. And you work with the governor. You were probably, actually, you you need to speak to this because I can't say it appropriately. No, I mean, Mary and Tanya, thank you for having me back for it part two this has been really fun um i I love this format it's it's a really great way to intimately talk about some of these things you know i think the outdoor industry and the outdoor economy you know we, we typically think about it through the lens of the fun stuff oh you go skiing hiking climbing biking boating fishing hunting um that that's fun we think about it through the lens of the activity but we don't think about it through the lens of the supporting economy around that. So think about your favorite cabin in the woods or your lake or, well, how, you know, what's the coffee shop on the corner like? Is there a local guide service? Is there a canoe rental company? Is there a transportation company that gets you to the canoe back and forth? Um, That supporting infrastructure and that economy has never really had a political voice, either in the United States or globally. And so, Another global example that I'll give you, and I'll use Everest in the context, when you think of Everest as a resource, a commodity um, for the Nepali people, for the Sherpas, you think of the glaciers, the glaciers turn into water, that water feeds the local crops, those crops feed the local population, that local population actually works on Everest supporting expeditions, Um, so there's a life cycle to that commodity. Now, if air quality degenerates, if 
through climate shift, the temperatures get so high that the glaciers become so dangerous to cross that you can't climb one way, you have to climb another. Um, and that other route is in a different country because a border straddles Mount Everest. Then you start talking about shifting economies and shifting cultures. So seeing some of these natural resources as a commodity for economic development um, and looking through the lens of supporting not only these structures for for that economy, but also for the public health and good of, of the community around that commodity um, is something that we're really focused on right now. And, you know, while a lot of our efforts in the United States are starting to gain momentum, um, looking at the outdoor industry and economy as an economic engine, um, you know, I think globally people are starting to pay attention um, as well. You know, even in Canada with the sale of MEC, you know, the, the one of the largest gear companies that you have, the co-op in Canada, there was a huge groundswell of support from co-op members that have said, this is culturally, this is our company, this is our co-op, and we're not going to allow it to be sold to a, 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 foreign, a foreign company, um, which was an American company, ironically enough. Name another industry where when a merger and acquisition takes place for a large company where you have an average person that's a consumer of that company that culturally shows up to defend it and try to stop the sale. That's the kind of culture you have in the outdoor industry. There's this love of place, love of purpose, and, and frankly, sometimes love of equipment. Do you have a favorite fuzzy jacket or a favorite pair of fuzzy slippers? You know, I've got tents in the closet. I won't give up because I've spent, you know, expeditions in multiple parts of the world in them. Um, they leak like a sieve. They're completely ineffective for using as a tent anymore, but I have an emotional connectivity to the equipment. So, you know, part of my journey right now is trying to understand that paradigm um, from a government perspective um, and, and, and how those things evolve. We love how, you know, you took what was your passion as a guide, as a mountaineer. And, um, you know, for those of you, again, who hasn't heard the last episode, please go ahead and do that because what you have gone through was amazing. You know, you have transformed your life and your health and well-being while um, pursuing this life choice that your parents were not necessarily backing you up <laughs> or standing by you. And or were the impetus yet, to it. <laughs> yes. And, you know, you are yet so successful. And I want um, Tanya to address this about the definition of a success because you are that, right? So I guess maybe first we want to ask you what your definition of success is and do you consider yourself a success? Ooh. Boy, you know, that's, I was going to say the second part is always the most boring part, but Mary, I think you're taking us down a, a good path. Um, you know, so Ariana. Oh, sorry. You got it. Oh, go ahead. Go. No, I was just going to say just to kind of feed you to, for, for food for thought, but Ariana Huffington, you know, the owner of Huffington Post, she talks about, she talks about redefining the meaning of success because everybody thinks about it as power and status and money. And she tries to redefine her. She's on this movement to redefine uh, the meaning of success to include well-being and inner wisdom and, and then giving back, like being like, you know, helping um, other people. And I feel like your huge uh, service is like, you're giving back through service. I feel like that's a huge part of your career and what makes you successful. I could be wrong in what you, how you define the meaning of success, but yeah, based on that, tell us, how do you feel? No, that's, that's a, a very um, interesting point you make, Tanya. And I think for me, you know, 
how you define success shows your vulnerability as a human being. Um, I don't, I don't equivocate that with um, ticking things off of a list, looking at that list and saying job well done. Um, I think everybody struggles with, with demons and, and, you know, this, this place of insecurity, you know, the fake it till you make it concept, the, am I doing the right things for the right reasons? Um, especially if you're tuned into some of those questions as a part of your, your daily practice. And, you know, for me in, in full transparency, um, because a, a large part of my start was based in, um, you're wasting your talent by doing this job, um, which did come from my family um, saying that right. mountain guide, what's that? Are you a camp counselor? Are you taking kids <laughs> in the woods? Oh, like, how are you going to feed the family? That's not that. I, okay. I don't know what that is, but that's not success. So, you know, as, as a young adult, having that sort of put on you, um, half of me was okay. Well, guess what? I'm going to prove you wrong. So yes. <laughs> you're chasing yes. this, you end up chasing this ghost yeah. and from a I, I was lucky enough to work with a couple of um, folks as clients that were um, psychologists um, that you know this was after climbing Everest a couple of times I think I was on my fourth successful expedition um, and this this person just asked me straight up Luis why do you come back every year and I said, quite frankly, well, it's my job. Like, this is how I make money. This is the biggest part of my salary every year is working Everest. So that's how I pay the bills, pal. Um, and, and, but then he kept digging. You know, he had, he had 30 days with me on this expedition in South America. I'm like, all right. Let's <laughs> he wants to get to the bottom wow, of it. Wow, you got therapy. Yeah, yeah. He's clearly bored and wants to put therapy on. Interrogate. Yeah, yeah, he wants to interrogate what, why, Terry, why are you asking me this question? He's like, well, why do you keep going back? And so we got into a little bit of the family history and we got into a little bit of, um, he sound, and he said, well, you, it sounds like you're chasing a ghost. And he's like, well, let's talk about all the people that get killed on these expeditions that go year over year, feel like they need to up it for sponsors. They need to up it to be the, the most successful company. Um, do, do you feel like you're, you're kind of chasing a dragon that you're never going to catch? And, and, you know, God love them. I still stay in touch with this person. Um, it, that, that shook me to my core. When I really started to explore my definition of success, you know, when I summited Everest with Eric, a blind person, any normal person would look at that and go, I'm good. I'd be like, I, I got nothing to prove. I'm good. Let's go explore other places. Let's do other things. But my mindset was, you know what? Maybe I was just lucky. So let's go do it again. Wow. And so then I did it a second time. Like, you know what? that was pretty simple. The clients were pretty easy in the context of like team logistics. Um, I've never fully led the expedition. So let's go back to Everest and be the leader instead of the number two. Okay. So that happened. Well, it really worked. That worked well. Okay. Um, but you know what? Can I do it again? So let's go see. So you get into this, this, this cycle, I think where, you know, everybody has their demons. And I think the, the way I addressed mine was, um, you know, you kind of feel like there's always somebody at the door, not only knocking on your back door for the job that you have, because it's competitive, um, but you also feel like um, you constantly have to be proving something to yourself. And to get to this point of, um, you know, could I step away from this industry full time and start completely over 
Um, you know, while, while public policy and foreign policy was always an interest, it was not my number one focus growing up, um, especially from an education standpoint. Um, went back to business school at a somewhat advanced age to try to get my MBA, ended up going to Harvard for a certificate in public policy because I needed to understand how to do the things that I wanted to do. And this was someone that could care less about academia when I was studying to be a guide. But to get to that point, I had to, I had to let go of and, and sort of be at peace with letting go of what was to try to create something new. And there's a sense of loss there that, that I don't think ever really leaves you. So, Tanya, that's a really long-winded way of saying, um, in my definition of success, success should be messy. It should be, it should be painful. And, and it should be something that that doesn't quite sit right with you. Because I think if you ever sat back and just said, I'm successful, it's good. I've got nothing else to prove and I'll, I'll just do the things that make me happy. And that's enough. Um, mm-hmm. for, my, for my wiring and my perspective, um, I, am, I am constantly at odds with myself of, am I doing it the right way? Am I capable enough to do this? Um, or am I just chasing a dragon and, and, and really you don't have anything to prove and you can let that one go. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of my messy definition. Of awesome. Success. What about moments where you felt like you wanted to quit either climbing or in your career? I'm sure there are some, or maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, I, yes, <laughs> without a doubt. Um, when you climb at that high level for as long as I have, you lose friends. That's just a, that's, that's a part of, uh, that's a part of the, the, the journey. And in, in working with uh, a lot of military veterans over the years, um, there's a lot of special forces programs that will send very, very elite warriors to learn how to climb at a high level because there's a lot of places where um, wars go on. Afghanistan, for one, for one place, where a lot of the fighting is done at altitude. So there was a significant part of my career that uh, – I still can't talk about because it's, uh, you know, you, you work in helping these, these soldiers understand um, what's in front of them. And I remember sitting around camp one night with, with some of these folks. Um, have you seen people die? Yes, I have. Have you worked on people, you know, try to save them, CPR, other things? Yes, I have. Um, you know, and, and talking through it, some of these guys said, you know, that, Luis, that's PTSD, buddy. Like that's, that's what that is. Um, and, and, you know, if you don't take care of that, um, that will, that'll haunt you. And, you know, when you ask, you know, there've been times that you've wanted to quit, you know, the loss sometimes um, doesn't equate the good stuff. And so there, there have been those moments where um, through some of the, that loss where it just didn't seem like it was worth it to me anymore. But the thing that struck me was whether you're part of the industry or not, that loss is going to continue because you, you know all these people. So do you stay in it at some point to try to help those folks? And the way you help can evolve. You know, if you stay guiding full time, it's like, well, you know, when I'm on the mountain with all these other folks that I know, I know that if there's a problem with me, I can hop on a radio and hell or high water, they're going to find me and they're going to they're help. And, and that trust and that comfort um, and is amazing, much like soldiers um, think about, about their comrades. Um, but for my evolution now, a large part of the way that I try to help is helping younger guides understand, much like military veterans, what that transition looks like. 
because you get out of a job either with the military or as a mountain guide mm-hmm. and you go to talk to a, a potential employer, like, what have you done? Well, I've spent, you know, about six years of my life in a tent uh, leading people up and down mountains. That's not the way you describe yourself. You've led um, a diverse group of people towards a distinct goal under a tight timeline with a very rigid budget managing international staff in a highly stressful environment. That's what you've just done. Yeah. And, and, and employers respond differently to that. And, and so I think, you know, in wanting to quit and finding a new way to help, I think that will always be a part of, of my journey because um, you, you can't you can't sort of shy away from it. Every Everest season still, if I'm there or not, I get texts from people on the mountain via satellite phone. Here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. And you just say a quiet prayer that it's all going to be okay. Nice. So to say things globally, thank you for that. That is an amazing, insightful share. Um, when you're facing death or potential deaths head on, like what, what saves you? Like how do you protect yourself from going down that deep, dark rabbit hole? You know, it, much like I shared in the first part of, uh, of this segment, it, you, you really understand the cycle of life on, on mountaineering trips. Um, you understand that people have chosen to be there. Um, Mount Everest never falls on anybody um, or other big mountains. People, people choose to engage in that risk. So a, a large part of what makes it okay for me when, when accidents happen around me um, with other teams um, is understanding that people have made that choice to, to be there. Um, you know, I think the thing mentally that, that, that helps me um, beyond that is that even beyond that choice um it's it's trying to live a part of your life that that most people never touch or 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 engage um and to 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 willingly walk through that door and and to 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 find that then you know i i'd be lying if i said there aren't moments where it feels like that death was senseless and that death we could have avoided that if you were just a little bit more careful if you if you would have done this this and this um, and, um, having never seen that, um, you know, people just don't understand how could this have happened? Well, you have to analyze it and evaluate it. And so that, that analysis on the other end is what also what really helps me. Um, cause that's what makes people better is not just saying, Oh, isn't it a shame? Yes, it's a shame. And what could we have done differently to prevent this? Right. So what I hear in all this is that, you know, you take whatever you face and then you you'll observe it and then look at it in a different way to basically level up on how you do things. Right. So and and really what you're alluding to, like climbing Mount Everest, it's it's like your life and the challenges that you face and Everest, people will see it differently in their own lives. And some, of course, it's not a choice. It's like, you know, we are born into something or things happen to us that we may be victim of. But yet they're still considered challenges and, and it can prepare you to um, with choice in how you view things and um potentially transform you. Can you speak to what I'm talking about here? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I'm not sure how much time we have left, but I can point to the biggest moment for that in, in my life um, that, that actually shifted me away from, from full-time guiding and, and into the policy world. Um, I was guiding on a mountain that was on the border of Tibet and Nepal called Cho'oyu. It's the sixth highest mountain in the world. And there's a low pass near that peak. 
that Tibetan refugees will utilize to cross out of Tibet, cross through Nepal, and get to Dharamsala, India, where the Dalai Lama resides. Because Tibetans... Um, at their core are, are Buddhist and still see the Dalai Lama as, as their, 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 their living God. And the, the, the Chinese border patrol um, polices that area pretty heavily. And there was an incident um, on this certain expedition where um, the border patrol basically took aim at these fleeing refugees trying to get over this 18,000 foot pass and started indiscriminately shooting at them. Um, ending up killing um, a few of the a few of the refugees that were trying to escape. I ended up um, being the one that broke the story um, to the global media. Spoke out a lot about it. Ended up working for International Campaign for Tibet. Um, really was conflicted about how this was going to connect with my daily life because at my core I would tell myself, "Well, I'm just a mountain guide." Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll end the story on a good good point. Uh, through this work and working with International Campaign for Tibet, which is really my first foray into global policy when it comes to, to human rights or, or public policy regarding the outdoor industry, um, I, got on my Dalai, I got on the Dalai Lama's radar somehow. <laughs> and uh, I remember I was packing for Everest, actually, and my phone rings and I pick up the phone and the person on the other end of the phone says, Mr. Benitez, my name is Lodi Gary. I'm the Dalai Lama's special envoy in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Uh, or it gets better. His Holiness has heard about the work you've done on behalf of the Tibetan people um, based on this incident, which was a clear crime against humanity, and he would like to meet you. Wow. Wow. Well, I was so busy packing for Everest. When you pack for Everest, it's not like packing for a weekend camping trip. You hire a friend. <laughs> <laughs> You're packing 20 duffel bags. There's music playing. You know, you've got, you know, 3,000 chocolate bars you have to pack and, and label. And so I remember like, not really being able to hear him very well. I'm like, what? I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Gary, please tell His Holiness. I'm flattered. I'm packing for Everest right now. <laughs> his Holiness is going to be around Dharamsala in June. Um, I'll, I'll happily come after my Everest expedition. Thank you very much for calling. Bye. Oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Classic, classic. I'm too busy packing. Mountain guiding idiot, hard at work. I no, no, you're, no. It's, I love it. It's like you're hard to get. You're hard to yeah. get. Play well, hard to get. But I. But here's the here's the kick. So I, I still have my hand on the phone, and a friend of mine came up and said, "What was what's wrong? Who called?" And I explained to him what had happened. He said. Oh my God, call him back, hit him back. Like, you, you idiot, what did you just do? I'm like, you know how to get him back. Like, how do I, how do I figure this out? Um, this is the like time before you can have a call back on a normal house phone, a landline. And so the phone rings about a minute later and there's a woman on the phone laughing and it's the executive director of the International Campaign for Tibet, Kate Saunders. And she's laughing and she says, Luis, okay, pop quiz. If the, if the duly elected representative for a living God calls you, <laughs> that his holiness wants to meet you what do you say I'm like i'm sorry yes okay <laughs> apologize i'll go i'll go i'll go i'll change my tickets so i ended up going to dharamsala and um what i thought was just going to be a meet and greet handshake hug picture through scheduling conflicts i think for other people that were going to be there that day it was myself a few folks from international campaign for tibet his holiness and his holiness's interpreter and we ended up having a 45-minute conversation about community and culture. And I had the audacity in that moment to complain about my loss of career in speaking out 
about this incident. I had lost guiding jobs. I had lost friends. It's really hard, the work that we've been doing on behalf of the Tibetan people. And he laughed and he, he looked at me in kind of broken English and with this interpreter said, yeah, you know, Luis, I'd like to still be my people's spiritual and temporal leader um, living in the Patala Palace in Tibet, but you can't always get what you want, kid. Sorry. <laughs> but then what, he said, what he said next really did change the trajectory of my life. He said, you know, Luis, sometimes um, you don't choose your path. Sometimes your path chooses you. And now it's going to be up to you to decide how you want to show up. And I remember spending that night in Dharamsala um, and, and then heading to Nepal to go to Everest the, uh, the, the next week. And I remember thinking that that was the end of my guy. I was no longer just a mountain guide. Uh, clearly, the policy world was now going to be a part of my life. And the defense of my industry, not just for human rights, but in total, um, was going to be the trajectory um, moving forward. And so to your question, Mary, um, that is the, that's the definitive moment where I knew that if I was just at that point saying, you know what, this was hard, but I'm a mountain guide. It's what I love. Um, so that's what I'm going to keep doing. That would have been a very straightforward process for me. Instead, I made a very distinct choice of saying, well, I love the industry and doing this part of it's going to be really hard, but I'm going to choose the hard thing because it's the right thing to do. Um, and that's my story. Wow. wow. Thank you so much. That was so fun. We really, really appreciate having you here as a guest. <laughs> we could talk Tanya, to you for do hours. You have a minute? Do you have another minute, Tanya? Do you, do you have do. to go right away? Yeah. No, no, we're good. We're good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because, of course, I have to, like, circle back to before when you said about your ADD, OCD. <sighs> and because um, here's <laughs> the thing. You, you're married. You're married, right? So, you know, you did something right. <laughs> So so, if you want to talk to her, I can go get her. Yeah. I love how no, focused no. you are and how you can then just, you know, weave your way back <laughs> in yeah. life and in story. I got, Amazing. I mean, like that classic, and I'm sure Les, Len says the same thing about Liz. I got lucky. Um, I married a sailor. Um, she, she grew up on the water sailing boats. Um, and, oh, and so, literally. Okay. So I, so I think there's, there's a, this connectivity to um, being with someone that understands, you know, being on a boat and being on an expedition are very, very similar things um, in the context of risk, as well as the need to keep things tight. So when I drop into that mode, she recognizes the craziness um, and can push back quite effectively. Stop it. You're being crazy. (laughs) She'll just say, you're having an episode, buddy. So take a step back, take a deep breath. um, And I don't care how the bed's made. So it's, right, uh, right. Um, you know, it's a factor in my life without a doubt, but I think the older you get, the more focused you are on how to manage some of those things. I always and you have kids, right? Oh, one little four-year-old girl. And oh. I can, I can already see the, uh, some of the tendencies in her. <laughs> so Aww. nature versus nurture. She likes yes. to line up all her toys and <laughs> very clearly this is the way it's going to be. I always joke and say, we're all crazy, just different levels of crazy. And you just got to find your crazy, right? Like well, the people that have to embrace it and not be ashamed. Yes, exactly. You know, I think when, when people are like, oh, PTSD, ADD, all these things you're talking about. Oh my. You know, I like to tell them, you know, those traits got me up and down some of the hardest mountains and some of the remote yeah. corners of the planet. Yeah, and they're also 100%. the things that make me brave enough to walk into any room, whether it's the Dalai Lama or somebody else, and say what I think and feel. 
So yes, there's a bad side to that stuff, but there's also a bright side and never forget that. And don't be ashamed of who you are. Well, and I don't even look at it as a, a bad or good or wrong. It's just what is and how you deal with it and how you level up. And it's gotten you to where you are. And it also helps to propel you to where you want to go, right? I mean, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Like it, you, you sit from the outside and say, oh, there's inspiration there. And he seems driven and, and he does X, Y, Z. Um, talk to my wife on a bad day. And it's, I, please, can you give him an expedition? Give him some place to go so he's <laughs> out of my hair because I can't. Um, there's always Love it. posters, hence the walking outdoors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Doors. Hey, I just yeah. go outside when it's too yeah. much for me and too much yeah. for my I just point myself uphill on Bernstein. Perfect. And, you know, how about, um, so, you know, most of the people that are going to be consuming this are not going to necessarily climb Mount Everest or any kind of mountain, maybe a little molehill. But uh, so, you know, how can they identify with what we're talking about here? What's one thing that you want to share with them as we're going through these challenging times? You know, I, I, I do think it, it goes back to, you know, if you like reading books about expeditions, there's this thing called expedition mindset that you don't need to be a climber to have that mindset. There, there's a lot of great literature on, on having this, this mindset of, you know, the way you mentally and physically put one foot in front of the other. Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. You have to look at this moment in time as an expedition. And, and there's going to be a day where you advance a little bit and a day where you're locked back in your house and a day where the vaccine shows up and a day that, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't go so well. And I think that that push pull, you know, the one thing that I'd offer to people is that you, you are so much more capable than you know and you give yourself credit for in what you have the capacity to deal with. If you're still semi-sane through all this, you've proven it. You can deal with it. You're doing it right now. Um, and, and I think that longevity, um, the reward at the end, summit or no summit, is the journey that you've been through. This is a moment in time you will tell your children and your grandchildren will know about. And the question you will have to ask yourself is, what did you do in the midst of that to, to make yourself and those around you okay? So you have to look at it as that opportunity. So um, that's what I would share with people is that your, your capacity for for endurance in this space you have to look at it as an endurance event not not just as a a bad thing because it is a bad thing but it's also an opportunity to like a marathoner like a climber like somebody that has to deal physically and mentally with these things you drop into this space mentally where where you i tell people all the time and, and this is i think the point where i'll i'll end with the people that are successful on Mount Everest, and this is a proven fact, are not the people that are used to in life finishing first. They're used to getting the gold star, finishing first, being the front of the line. Those people right now are being driven absolutely insane by the pandemic because they're, they're not in control of their world. Something else is. The people that are successful on Everest are the people that are used to finishing second place, third place, fourth place, maybe never finishing at all. But the one thing they have is they know how to get back up after they've been knocked down to their knees and keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's that capacity to endure and sustain that, that often will see you through some of those things. And believe me, I've had people, type A folks, ultra marathoners, people that win at everything they do show up and say, Luis, I'm going to prove you wrong. And every single time to a person, those folks end up going home. 
So don't think about it as finishing in first place. Just find a way to finish in one piece. Mm. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you want to ask the question, Tanya? <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I just wanted to just, honestly, I'm kind of floored. I, I just, I, I'm a little bit speechless and I'm just super grateful to have you on. And, and, uh, Oh, I can't wait to meet you guys in person. I'll, I know. I'll visit Len and we'll have a big fun laugh over all this. Absolutely. Yes, for fantastic. sure. We would love that. Okay. So we need to end off, but, you know, because they say we could like speak to you all day long, but we got to say our goodbyes right now. So before we go, though, share with us what is one thing that filled your cup? You know, I think the thing that fills my cup um, these days is the, the ability to share the story that we've, we've uh, embarked on today together. Um, that your capacity to endure is greater than you, you think is possible. And when, whenever I have an opportunity to, to share that with people and help them understand a little bit of effort, stepping out of your comfort zone, um, even beyond being a part of what's going on right now, um, can go a long way. That fills my cup every day. Awesome. The best. So if you like this podcast, well, like the podcast, go on Apple iTunes, give us a five-star rating, comment, share, and take a screenshot. DM us at, uh, on Instagram at Embrace You First, and uh, we will choose a winner at the end of the month to have a 30-minute free consultation with either Dr. Tanya Wild or myself. So have a great rest of the week, and we shall see you again next time. Like and share. Please comment and suggest topics you want us to cover. Until next time, ask yourself how you're going to embrace you first today. For more podcasts, check out embraceyoufirst.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.